Good morning, IBC. I'm so glad to be back in church. Except nobody's here. I miss you guys. And I, uh, I know you miss each other. Uh, God's told us to meet together for a reason. We're part of a family. And uh, we gain strength from each other. We gain courage from each other. We gain perseverance from each other. And uh, God, by God's grace, however... The family's still intact, isn't it? We still love each other, and we're still gaining support from each other. Uh, the one thing, uh, you know, these are crazy times, that uh, one thing uh, that I appreciate is the humor that you see about uh, this virus. We see jokes about uh, toilet paper. We see jokes about face masks. We see jokes about the governor's uh, stay-at-home orders. And uh, we also see some things about homeschooling. Now, most of the things I've seen are negative, uh, humorous, negative jokes about homeschooling. But I saw one posted the other day that uh, was a positive note. It's, the mother said, uh, this is a great day. Both my boys, age 9 and 11, graduated from high school. And they'll be leaving home soon finding work. So anyway, we need to keep up a, a good sense of humor during this time as well. Well, let's uh, bow in prayer before we, uh, before we start. Lord, we just uh, commit this time to you. You have promised that your, your word always goes forth with power. We pray that uh, it will go forth today, as you have always promised. And we give this service to you in Jesus' name. Amen. In the... Uh, opening lines of his gospel, the Apostle John focuses our attention on Jesus, who he was and why he came. He tells us that uh, Jesus was God, the creator, the life giver, the light of the world. He was the enlightenment of every man. He describes how this Jesus became flesh, and how he uh, brought light to a dark world, how he dwelt among us, and how the glory of God was manifest in him and through him. And yet, sadly, John also describes how man was blinded to who he was. The creator God coming to his beloved creation, and they knew him not. Listen to what uh, John writes. He was in the world, and, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and, and those who were his own did not receive him. Wow, what a statement. Is this even possible? Had man fallen so far from the heart of God that he did not even recognize him as he walked, walked in their very midst? Think about it, the glory of God was shining right before their very eyes. How could you not stand amazed? How could you not stand in awe? And yet they did not see him. They did not know. Yeah, years earlier, the prophet Isaiah had uh, foreseen the condition of man's heart. In fact, if we go back uh, in chapter 13 of Matthew, where we're here today, but if we go back earlier, Jesus refers 
to this very prophecy of Isaiah. And he says this prophecy is being fulfilled in your presence. Here's what Isaiah said. You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their eyes, they scarcely hear. And they have closed their, with their ears, they scarcely hear. And with their, they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand that their heart, with their heart, and return. And I would heal them. Tells you something about the heart of man, doesn't it? And are we really surprised? Long before Jesus came to earth, there was darkness gripping all of mankind. Man's heart was hard, and man's ways were evil. Man's words were blasphemous. God was an afterthought. And Paul described this well in the book of Romans, chapter 3. And I'm going to read to you what he said. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their sweet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So this was the world. This was the state of man when Jesus arrived on the scene. Man's heart was hard, far from the heart of God. Sadly, this is the same world that exists today. Instead of welcoming Jesus, we reject him. Instead of standing in awe, we stand defiant and self-consumed, blind to who he is and preferring the darkness rather than light. And as we see in today's passage, the people of Nazareth were no different. They too failed to recognize their Savior. We have seen in the study of Matthew that Jesus has been going about Israel being who he was, performing miracle after miracle and speaking words never before heard from the mouth of man, revealing the glory of God to the people. And we find in Matthew 13, where we're at today, that Jesus has been describing the kingdom of God by means of a series of parables. And when he finished those parables, he moved on to his hometown, the city of Nazareth. Let me read uh, to you from uh, chapter 13 of Matthew, beginning in verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, 
Are they not all with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. By the way, uh, by the way this was not Jesus' first visit to, uh, to his hometown. He had made Nazareth one of his very first stops when he began his public ministry. And uh, we find in Luke chapter 4 that uh, Jesus was in the synagogue, and Luke describes it as going very well until Jesus explained who he was and what his ministry was. And the people erupted. They even made move to kill him. And about a year later, he returns. Why you would return to a place like that, I don't know, but he returned. And today's passage chronicles that second visit. And as before, we find in Jesus in the synagogue. It says that the people were astonished at his teaching. Why were they astonished? Well, he had spent most of his entire life living in their little village. And at no time had he received a formal education on things of God. He had not gone to Jerusalem to sit at the feet of the great religious leaders of the day. He had probably received what everybody else in Nazareth had received, a a rudimentary, basic education. And And there he was. And yet there he was, teaching God's word with such authority and wisdom that the people who heard it were stunned. They were astonished. It would have been like a high school dropout from the hollers of West Virginia. Let me pause there a second. I I asked Mike today, Jones, I said, uh, what's a holler? And he says, well, it's it's a place up up the valley. Past, past the old oak tree and up, up past the old red barn. It's, it's, it's up the valley. So, it's like a dropout from up the valley who suddenly appeared uh, before the National Academy of Science and spoke on the laws of thermo, thermodynamics. It just don't happen. It just doesn't happen. Now, so understandably then, the, the people of Nazareth asked the question, where did this man get this wisdom? Where did he get these miraculous powers? Now, let's put the question in perspective. The people had certainly heard all that Jesus was doing. Not only was he speaking words of profound wisdom, but he was healing the sick. He was casting out demons, performing miracle after miracle that defied human capability. So it was clear to everyone It's totally clear to everyone that Jesus was something special. He was different. And the people flocked to him. And it's interesting to note that uh, nobody ever questioned whether his miracles were true or not. Even the religious leaders. Because he had done them all in public for everyone to see. You remember the uh, religious leaders questioning the... uh, the man who had been blind from earth, blind from birth. In fact, in the end, the fact of his healing was not really in question. They just didn't want Jesus to get the credit. So the people of Nazareth 
ask the question, where did this carpenter, this simple carpenter from our little town, receive the ability to heal and perform miracles? Where did this common man from our little village receive the ability to teach with such wisdom and authority? Now, an unbiased thinking person could only come to one conclusion. It was from God. So what was so hard? What was so hard for these people? Why was it so difficult? Jesus on many occasions has warned his disciples that they would encounter a world of unbelief. The parable of the soils was just such a warning. In that parable, Jesus said that unbelief has many faces. The hard soil, the the rocky soil, the uh, choke soil. That is the condition of the soil that matters. In essence, Jesus was telling his disciples that unbelief is not an exercise of the mind. It's not a matter of evidence or proof. But it's a matter of the heart. After all, what greater evidence, what greater proof can we ask for? That the God of glory is standing in our midst, performing miracles and teaching with authority. The proof was there. The evidence was was overwhelming. But the heart was not. Now, the people of Nazareth fully illustrate this point. When they heard of the miraculous deeds and, and heard the power of his words, they asked the right question. Who is this man? But they came to the wrong conclusion. How could they? How could they come to the wrong conclusion? How could they, they not believe? After all, they, had, they of all people should have come to the right conclusion. They of all people could see the supernatural at work and a man that grew up in their midst. He taught the things of God never before taught and, and he performed miracles on a scale never before seen. What other explanation could there be? He was from God and did the things of God. His, his power, his miracles, his wisdom were all the proofs that were necessary. And the same is true today. All the evidence is there. All the proof is there. How can you look at the, how can you look at the vastness of the universe and not see God? How can you look at a snow-covered mountain and not see his majesty? How can you see a storm and not see his power? How can you, how can you look at a sunset and not see his glory? The proof, it's always been there. So what is it? It's a matter of the heart. Look at the story of Lydia. In the book of Acts, it says that the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. In other words, she saw because of the condition of her heart, not because of Paul's persuasive words. Paul could have preached till he was blue in the face, but unless her heart was open to hear, he preached in vain. She heard, 
and she saw with her heart. So the people of Nazareth rejected Jesus because their hearts were hard. It was the heart or soil of unbelief that prevented them from seeing who Jesus was. Instead of embracing Jesus, they rejected him. Instead of honoring him, they were offended by him. Now there are several lessons uh, we can learn about the nature of unbelief from this passage. First, unbelief always blurs the obvious. It simply refuses to see the truth. And so it was in Nazareth. They were blinded. Why? One reason is uh, stated clearly in the passage. They thought they knew Jesus. He was nobody special. He was one of them. He was a carpenter's son who grew up in their midst. The family consisted of ordinary people, their neighbors, people just like them. Now you might ask, how could they, uh, how could they not see who he was since he spent almost 30 years of his life with them? He was indeed sinless, but to their credit. Scripture does not say anything about Jesus performing miracles or any special teaching that Jesus did before he started his public ministry. So the people probably were not confronted with this supernatural Jesus during his time with them. But now they were. Mary's son was performing unbelievable miracles and teaching like no other. This hometown boy was teaching as though he had been taught in Jerusalem. He was performing astonishing signs. And yet the people of Nazareth could not get over the hurdle. They thought they knew Jesus. And in their minds, he was not who he claimed to be, despite the fact of overwhelming evidence that was before them. My best friend growing up was a guy called Bobby. Bob and I were constantly engaged in uh, some athletic endeavor, whether it be a pickup football game or one-on-one basketball in the backyard. Bobby was a great high school athlete, and there were several major universities that recruited him to play football. I'll never forget the conversation we had concerning which scholarship to accept, USC or Cal. USC was a major national powerhouse at the time with people like O.J. Simpson on the team, and Bob was leaning toward playing for USC. But I tried to convince him to go to Cal. So at least he'd he'd get a chance, maybe, of playing. Well, Bobby didn't take my advice. He went to USC, where he played wide receiver. He was the most valuable player of the 1970 Rose Bowl and went on to play 13 years in the NFL, where he played on a winning Super Bowl team and led the league in receptions for several years. The point I'm trying to make is this. Here's a guy I grew up with. Here's a guy I competed against. Here's a guy I went on double dates with. Here's a guy I thought I knew inside and out. Yet I'd failed to see the obvious that he was a premier athlete destined for greatness. But to me, it was just Bobby. He was just like me. 
And I thought I, I knew Bob the same way the people of Nazareth thought they knew Jesus. How wrong we both were. You see, the, the people of Nazareth, because of their familiarity with Jesus, had certain expectations of who he was. And when he didn't meet those expectations, they couldn't accept what he really was. They couldn't accept the true Jesus. He was not what they expected, and because they were set in their expectations, they were offended by him. They thought they knew him, and instead of welcoming him, they flat out rejected him. And Jesus, as a result, never came back. And so it is with the unbeliever. He has his own view of who Jesus is. He was just a man, but he was a great teacher. He was a a great example. He he preached love and acceptance. He would would never judge or condemn. Hell was never a part of his vocabulary. I refuse to accept a Jesus as it's not conformed to my personal view of who he is. And this failure to to see Jesus for who he is extends to uh, beyond the simple unbeliever. Every Christian cult fails in at least one basic area, the failure to see Jesus for who he is, the inability to see his deity and divine nature. They look at the same Jesus that we do, and yet they don't see him as being one with the Father. They have set their Jesus, their ideas, and their expectations of Jesus into a little box, and there he sits. To quote Isaiah again, they keep on seeing, but they don't perceive. This failure to see, this this unbelieving heart can also tragically affect the true believer as well. If we're not careful, we can develop our own expectations of who Jesus is. Expectations to which we expect him to conform. Expectations that are rooted in the familiar. Expectations which blur our vision. Like the Nazarites, we we have them all figured out. And as a result, we, we begin to lose our sense of awe and wonder at who he is. We no no longer expect or allow him to challenge our behavior or our thoughts. We become too comfortable with who he is. We become too comfortable with Jesus for our own making. Let's face it, we like the familiar. And in the Bible, we're often compared to sheep, and rightly so. We're, we're ignorant and stubborn and have a few uh, watts missing upstairs. But our behavior is remarkably like sheep. In reading about the habits of sheep, I learned that uh, sheep also like the familiar, even to their own detriment. They're often frightened uh, of unfamiliar territory, and they prefer to stay in fields which have long since lost their uh, usefulness as healthy grazing land. Sheep will also use the same familiar path over and over again. They refuse to change course or direction, and as a result, there's huge gullies that are developed on the pasture fields. Gullies that uh, can cause great harm and injury to the sheep. So that's exactly what the 
the familiar can do to us. We like uh, sheep prefer the familiar, even if it is to our own detriment, even if we stay on the same worn out pasture. We have our comfortable Jesus routines and we dare not wander far from those routines. And soon they become just that. They become routines. Routines that do little to challenge our, our growth in Christ. Routines that become way too familiar. And consequently, uh, we fail to see Jesus beckoning us to follow him down a different, different path. Never allowing Jesus to challenge our thoughts and our behavior, our actions, our understandings. Like sheep, we, we rerun the danger of suffering from our own stubborn resistance to change. That's not what I want. And I know that's not what you want. We want to be vibrant in our walk with Jesus. The shepherd wants that as well. And that will only happen if we keep our eyes on the shepherd and follow him wherever we go, even if it leads us off that same worn out old path. Change is what God uses to transform us, to keep our relationship with him alive. We should embrace change. Let me ask this. Do you still get excited about Jesus? Do you still stand amazed at at who he is? Does his love for you still amaze you? Do his words still challenge you? Are you satisfied with where you are in your walk with Jesus? Are you still willing to expand your boundaries to allow him to change and transform you? Listen, if you want to grow in Christ, if we must follow him and expect him to transform us and do his divine work in our lives. And we must have a willingness to, to let our boundaries go, to expand our boundaries and allow him to lead us wherever he may take us. Otherwise, we will be like the, the people of Nazareth, people with hard hearts, people who love the familiar and choose the familiar over seeing Jesus for who he really is. One Christian uh, pastor wrote, he is the teacher and we are the ignorant ones. He is the healer and we are the sick ones. He is the savior and we are the lost ones. And let us never lose our sense of awe and wonder at him. Let's make sure that we always come to him in humble, teachable faith. Let us always welcome him for who he truly is. Now there's another lesson we can learn about unbelief from these Nazarites. The unbelieving heart always rationalizes its unbelief. There is always a reason for not believing, a reason usually founded in the irrelevant. Well, what is relevant? What's the important issue? Your eternal destiny. Where you're going to spend eternity. What's relevant are the claims of Christ. And so note what the people do in our passage. They divert the issue. They divert to his heritage, to his family, to his profession. We know his family. They're just regular folks. We know his profession. He's, he's just a carpenter. 
Tell me, what does that have to do with his message? How does that impact the truth of what he taught? How does his family or profession disprove or explain away his miracles? It doesn't. Yet that was the argument they gave for their unbelief. And that is the same type of irrelevant response to the gospel you see today. The response is never about themselves. It's never about their eternal destiny. It's always about something or someone else. It is always, oh, they always find fault in everything and everyone but themselves. For example, they don't like the preacher. His sermon was too long. It was too boring. Or they were offended by the worship music. It was too loud. Or the people weren't friendly enough. The church was too big. All Christians are hypocrites. I know because I know some. And they didn't like the message. It was, it was too black and white, too dogmatic, uh, too exclusive. They even asked questions and uh, or seemed eager to receive the answers. But the answers never satisfy. They only lead to more questions and more objections. They find excuse after excuse to discount Christianity. All designed to shift attention away from the real issue themselves, their eternal destiny. In their blindness, they refuse to see their sinfulness and they refuse to see their helplessness. This is the heart of unbelief. And unless we're careful, it can also become the heart of the believer. Even those who believe can have a hard heart of unbelief. Jesus has promised to care for us, to carry us through every adversity and hardship that we face in life, to be with us now and always. He's promised to be our shepherd, our protector, our shield, our fortress, our peace, the guardian of our souls. And do you believe that? Do you believe that? Or do you crumble into disbelief every time a hardship comes your way? Refusing to trust in the promises of God. In January of this year, we traveled to uh, visit our son Jacob and his family in Beijing. And uh, while there, the virus broke out with a vengeance. And uh, we were pretty much confined to Jacob's apartment and Beijing seemed like a ghost town. As days progressed, we decided that it would be prudent uh, to maybe come home earlier than planned. But that, uh, that was easier said than done. All the major airlines canceled their flights to and from Beijing, including our return flight home on Delta. If we didn't figure out a way out soon, we'd probably be in China for months. And although I knew God was in control, I found myself uh, with a lot of anxiety and worry. I, I could not quite accept the fact that God wanted me to stay in China, that God knew what's best. And so I, I struggled, hating, hating what my unbelief was doing to me. It was only after many uh, prayers of pouring out my heart that I was able to gain, regain my trust 
to gain my peace that God's will would be accomplished and was the right will for my life. You see, unbelief can cripple us. It can cripple us as believers. It can knock us out of the game. And like the unbeliever, it's all a matter of the heart. A heart that simply refuses to believe. Can consider the Israelites as they stood before the promised land, a land which God had promised to them, and they refused to go in. Why? Because of reports of giants in the land? That was the excuse they gave, but that was not the real reason. The real reason was their unbelieving hearts, their refusal to believe God's promise. And as a result, they were kicked out of the game. They were sidelined for 40 years. In contrast, consider David. While the whole army of Israel shook in fear before Goliath, this teenage boy took God at his word and accomplished the impossible. Our our unbelief is simply a failure to trust God at his word, a failure to believe Jesus when he says, I am always with you. A hard heart refuses to believe and therefore prevents us from experiencing the joy and triumphs of Christianity. Instead of grazing in the green fields of faith, we are left to scavenge in the barren fields of unbelief. A.W. Tozer said quite pointedly, Nothing is worse than unbelief because it keeps us from what God has in mind for us. It prevents us from coming to the Father and pushes us away from his kingdom. Last fall, the the subject of my sermon was amazing grace. It was 180 degrees from what it is today. And there we looked at the components of grace. And the centurion in that story taught us how to believe. In essence, he simply trusted in Jesus. He trusted in the goodness and lordship of Christ. He never flinched. He never questioned. He simply believed. And Jesus said, that's amazing. So God's promises are true. And you may be listening here today struggling to believe. You may be listening here today having fallen to temptation and believing God will never forgive you. But God's promise says, if you confess your sins, I am faithful and righteous to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's God's promise. You may be listening to here, here today struggling with some kind of addiction, alcohol, drugs, pornography, gambling, and believe that you'll never overcome it. But God says, I've given you resurrection power. I've given you my power to overcome. That's God's promise. You may be listening today with with a broken heart, and resign to the fact that you'll never heal. 
But Jesus says, I have come to heal the brokenhearted. I have come that your joy may be made full. That's God's promise. You may be listening today full of fear and anxiety, uh, believing that there is no hope, that God has abandoned you. But God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. My right hand upholds you. I am with you always. That's God's promise. So what a difference, what a difference it makes to believe in the word of God, to believe God at his word. In Nazareth, he walked away from unbelieving hearts and they never knew his his joy and peace. But not so with a believing heart. He will never leave or forsake you. And his joy and his peace will fill you all the days of your life. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you uh, that your word convicts. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you that we can uh, follow your word and trust your word and believe your word. Help us, Lord, in our belief. Help us in our trust. Help us in our faith. And uh, we pray, Lord, that uh, your joy may fill us all forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.